I want to welcome everyone to today's episode. We are going to be getting into the third installment as it relates to parenting. In the first episode, we had uh, Dr. John Louis, who has his model called Good Enough Parenting, and it really gets into the levels of exasperation. And when we are exasperated, our kids don't want our faith. Our kids typically distance themselves from relationship the more exasperated we are as parents. And then we have Matina Montez, who really kind of filled in the gaps of what does the community play in terms of the role? Um, and today we're going to be getting specifically into how does a child's brain work? I think this is really important because when I think of connecting with my children or I think of connecting with people who are trying to, trying to connect with their children, we have to understand a child's world. I think the other really important obvious aspect of this too is that we have to connect with the next generation. I think that many people are concerned about whether or not they are connecting with the next generation, their children and so forth like that. And we have to understand what the research says about how to go about connecting. And so I have a very credible, uh, and she's also a colleague, but a very credible resource, um, Jane Bajewski, uh, we worked together. We worked together actually for years. And uh, she's gonna be joining today to be sharing from the wealth of knowledge that she has, because this is what she does. Without further ado, Jane, welcome to the channel. Thank you, Kyle. I'm really excited about having you on. You and I, we've talked probably for about a year or so yeah. about having you come on and share and so forth like that. Thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I'm also a fan, so had to, do it. <laughs> had to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into why you decided to go into therapy and then specifically why work with kids? Um, accidentally on purpose is how it happened. Right. So I'll tell a really quick story of Sarge, my Irish Catholic family and the twins. So at 16, um, I found myself running cross country for a man named Sarge. He was in our high school. He was also the teacher of the behavior disordered classroom, the BD classroom, as they used to call it. And all of us kids, all of us really high functioning, you know, athletes, um, we would find ourselves spending more and more time in his portable, the BD classroom. And this was not a place where most people would hang out, right? Um, there was explosive behaviors. Um, there was kids who were really struggling, but I went there to find peace. Mm. He had a way of being. He knew things that research is only now explaining. And he mm. had a way of being around children that... I didn't realize was informing what I wanted to do as a, as a professional at the time, as a kid, I was just soaking it up and he had this magic and I wanted it. You know, it meant something to me because I had came from this amazing, loud Irish Catholic family who loved hard and, and fought hard. And it was a really different experience for me to be around a grown up who was so calm. And that same Irish Catholic family, my father told me, you know, no matter what you do, Jaina, you do it better for the next generation. That is what he tasked himself with. And it stayed with me. And so about the time that me and my husband were uh, trying to have kids, I'd been a therapist. I've been in the field for like 15 years, but I'd only done adult therapy. And it just kind of accidentally on purpose happened that I was like, I need to figure out how to be a parent. And I'm in this field and right about the time that I was coming into motherhood, I thought there's some things that I want to give my kids that I got from my parents and there's some things I don't. 
And a really, really cool way for me to figure that out was to say, I'm going to start learning everything I can about how kids work, how their brains work, and what kind of parent I want to be, because I wanted to be a really intentional parent. And so that's how I accidentally on purpose became a child therapist, a child and family therapist. Well, one of the things I'm excited about and having you is like when I typically just for the audience, when you look at a therapist and you look at all the credentials or you look at all the letters they have, Jane is one of those people who's trained in a lot. And so uh, I was really excited about having you on because when you look at all those letters, it's incredibly confusing. And it's like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, can you just give a little bit of an overview of the different approaches that you have found to be useful? Yes, absolutely. Well, specifically, it parallels adult therapy because you have said in your work, before you can do trait work and change behaviors, you have to do state work and work on the inside. Now, that's true for children, but it sounds a little different because adults' minds, by about 25 or 30, their brains are pretty fully developed. Little kids, no, that's actually something that's growing and the brain is shaped by experience. And that experience really comes from very few people. The community for sure influences it, but the people who have the most influence on that are their primary caregivers. And so what we do, why I say I'm not a child therapist, I'm a child and family therapist, is because I cannot do any kind of initial state work without that attachment figure that primary caregiver that that child has. They cannot drop the kid off at my office and leave because I don't have the medicine. They do. I can show them how to use their medicine. That's my role. But so what we first do is we first usually are working on, okay, we have these behaviors. And my specialty is children zero to five, but I work all the way up till about 1920. And so these behaviors are different for every age, but usually really external. So really big tantrums, really big outbursts. Teenagers are running away. They're very angry. Um, they can also be really internal, so shut down. And so what, what my approach is, is I have to do um, first that state work. And that is done through a process called co-regulation. Because as our brains develop, we learn how to regulate, and I love that your previous guest used the word, was it um, escalate or exacerbate? And I would say- Exasperate. 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 And in my world, we call that dysregulate or regulate. And mm. so I like to teach my parents and my kids, the first thing we do is we're working on that attachment system because that's what calms a kid down, right? But a kid doesn't calm just by watching us, they calm through us. In fact, I tell parents, we are a template. So we are the template for emotion and relationship for them. So what our relationship is with our child gives them skills or doesn't give them skills, strengthens them towards regulating their emotions or not regulating and dysregulating their emotions. So the very first work I do, and this can go on for months, is we are working on regulation between the parent and the child dyad. And here's why. Experience builds the brain. Relationship builds the brain. We know that more than anything, and that's why I say parents are the medicine. So we first do that work in some of the therapies I use, um, trained in polyvagal theory, because emotions are regulated in the central nervous system, which starts in the brain do a lot with circle of security, which has the motto of good enough parenting. 
Yeah, mm. good enough. I'm not a perfect parent. I don't expect a perfect parent because we want to be real. And so we do a lot of that initial regulation work um, and it's skill building that's done through the vehicle, the relationship with the parent and the child. Once we've um, really strengthened that attachment, then that child is then ready, their brain is then ready to work on things like processing trauma. And a lot of that with older kids, I do through modalities like EMDR, um, multi-dimensional family therapy. Um, I use a lot of dialectical behavior therapy, again, for additional regulation as we're coping through trauma. For my little kids, I do parent work. Parents are such the holding space for their kids. They make it safe to work on hard stuff. And so I use parent-child interaction therapy for my kiddos with really externalized behaviors, really big tantrums. And we use that with an attachment focus. So um, that is where I'm coaching parents on how to be the most effective parents they can to manage big behaviors. And we work children all the way through big tantrums because I say that we don't avoid the tantrum, we go to the tantrum. The tantrum is the most prime opportunity to reshape a brain, to build brain architecture. Really? Yes, yes. Don't fear the tantrum. And that's where most parents come in and need the most help. So PCIT, the Iowa attachment model is what I use. I also do child parent psychotherapy. And that's where we process trauma through play for kiddos who have experienced really scary forms of violence or had really hard traumatic experiences. And that's a therapy for children zero to five. So I have specific therapies that I use for my littles and those are always with the parent right there in the room as the holding space. And I'm actually frequently just coaching that parent because that parent is gonna be, like I said, the medicine that helps really give doses to that child and moves them along their process. The whole time that I'm doing these various therapies, so whether it's PCIT, CPP, Circle of Security, Polyvagal Theory, EMDR, the whole time, I'm always holding the parent-child relationship and we're always focusing on that. And because that's where most of the change happens. When we tweak a little bit of parenting, which I learned as a parent, when we tweak it, child's behavior changes but more importantly, child's brain changes. Oh, I think this is so fascinating. And I'm just thinking about my kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you were talking about that, go to the tantrum. I'm like, oh, how do we, I just, I love that because I'm going to get something out of this for sure. Anyway, uh, I love, I love that you're talking about keeping uh, the diet intact yep. in, in because I do think historically um, Western concepts of individualism have been imported into how we think about treatment. And we don't think in terms of the relationship, we think in terms of the symptom. And what I love is, and this is so contiguous as it relates to the guests that I have brought on, is you never take the parent out of the equation. And I think that there have been even models within building churches where, oh, you have this teen ministry or you have this children's ministry or you have this um, ecosystem where you can give your kids away for a while, they'll transform and they should be better by the time they come back, like church camp in the summer or whatever, by vacation Bible school or whatever. And we want for some sort of other mechanism to perform 
uh, you know, so that the relationship can improve. And what I'm hearing you say, which is consistent with all my other guests, which is the parents aren't going to be taken out of the process at any point. Why I would never want to set a family up to be dependent on anyone other than themselves. Mm. And there is no relationship stronger that we could ever really substitute. We can definitely enhance and support, but you're the, the relationship from the moment, even in utero that that baby is developing, that relationship is so powerful and so strong and so influential. We want to use that. You know, I worked 20 years ago in inpatient adolescent addiction recovery, and, and those kiddos would sure get stable in treatment for 90 days, and then they would go home and they would relapse. And we quickly wow. realized we're not working with the unit we need to work with. It's a family, it's a parent-child unit that we need to be working with. And we need to set those parents up skillfully for success and how to support and intervene with their children. I tell families, I love to see you. Uh, come see me for you know, anywhere from nine to 18 months and then take what I've given you and go do it the rest of your life and go change your family. And what you don't realize is you're gonna change the next generation and the next generation. And so some of this work we're doing is gonna impact the whole community. But it's like we learned we need to be more effective and work with families versus separating and not using that beautiful, powerful relationship. That makes a ton of sense. And I am very encouraged to hear you say that because uh, I've worked with kids. I don't work with kids nearly as much as I used to. Um, when I do family therapy is typically when I work with kids now, but I, without question, um, cannot conceive of any sort of modality that takes a parent out. It just, it's, it's going to have short-term results. I thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate that so much. Our next sort of, uh, piece is going to be this book by Dan Siegel. Really excited. Uh, for those of you watching right now, just go ahead and put this in the Amazon cart right now. Uh, and, uh, this is what we're going to be taking a look at. And why do you like this so much, Jana? Why has this been such a game changer for you? Well, neuroscience is hard. Okay. Uh, learning about the brain is new. Um, in the last 60 years, we've really um, came to this knowledge base of intersection between attachment and the brain development. And it's, it's hard to sift through that kind of information and research that we're finding. Then Dan, Dr. Dan Siegel comes in and makes it easy for us. He is a child uh, youth psychiatrist who is also a clinical professor at UCLA. And that book is my favorite of his, but he has a library of books he has written for parents, for families, for children of different ages. I like this book because he breaks it down and gives you tools to use in your house. Dr. Dan Siegel works with the whole brain. He has a whole brain approach and there's nice little catchphrases that me as a parent, because I didn't tell you, um, right about the time that I was learning these therapies, I had twins. And so, and then I had another. So I had, I had four kids or three kids in four years. And so uh. I was doing parenting and putting all my therapies. I learned to work on steroids. So it was helpful for me as a parent to not have, you know, theory without application. He gives you that. It was helpful for me as a parent to have quick little phrases that I could reference that would make sense of things like, 
brain architecture, neural fiber connections. It was nice for me to understand that. So here's a couple things I used to overview Dr. Siegel. Connection before redirection. Mm. Connection before redirection. Which part of the brain do I want to grow in my child? And what are the three questions? The three questions that he wants us in the moment of tantrum, in the moment of teenage meltdown or shutdown, three questions he wants us as parents to ask is, why, what, and how? Why is my child acting this way? What is the lesson or the skill that they need? How do I want to teach it? Because discipline, discipline is an important thing we do as parents. But when we translate discipline to Latin, it means to teach. And that's what the how question is. Mm. We are teachers for our children. Mm. And if you think about the kind of teachers you learned the best from, they had a certain way about them. For me, it was Sarge. He had a way of being. And that's the connection that has to happen to open up the pathway in the brain to the learning center. Then we do the redirection. So central nervous system and learning, okay, I'll kind of try to break it down here. Emotions that we deal with as parents, outbursts that we deal with as parents, shutdown and meltdown from teenagers that we deal with as parents, they all start in the central nervous system and they all start, that includes the brain. And Dr. Dan Siegel takes all this that we know about the brain and he breaks it down into two pieces, the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. Mm. which is so lovely because in the moment of a giant tantrum and I'm looking at my child, it's very helpful for me to just say, okay, what brain is he in? So mm. that's really helpful. Yes. So, you know, um, as adults are, we really like logic. We, li we really like reason. And that's what we want to foster and develop in our children. That's the upstairs brain. So the upstairs brain is where we are able to access our thinking and our logic. We're also able to moderate our emotions. We're able to access our moral compass. It's where cultivation of empathy happens and it's where we have impulse control. Okay, remember how I said that the brain isn't fully developed till 25 or 30? That's because the upstairs brain is the last part to develop. And we as parents have so much influence in how that is actually built, the actual structures in the brain, how those are built. The downstairs brain is what children live in. It's the part of the brain that is emotional. So the limbic system, it's the part of the brain where we're very primitive and we're reading nonverbals of our parents or caregivers and we're making inferences about what their emotional state is and we're reacting to that emotional state, right? So Dr. Dan Siegel is always talking about many of the old school parenting approaches that many of us were raised in were really targeting the downstairs brain and entrenching the reactive emotional downstairs brain. The practices he elicits that he writes in his book that are talked about and it, that I implement in every therapy I do, um, anything that's brain-based, they all kind of, it's nice because they all kind of are speaking the same language. What he talks about is that we have different approaches that we've learned that we know are better for our children that actually strengthen 
their capacity and grow their upstairs brain. So pretty simple example is if I see my child and let's put it in a public place, let's put it either where most meltdowns happen at Target or at church. Okay, let's put it where lots of people are watching. Mm, I please. See, if I see my kid having an absolute meltdown, starting to throw the big tantrum, if I then react with a really sharp and harsh knock it off, or I physically hold them and say straighten up, or I'm going to carry you out of here really harshly, I am only engaging the downstairs brain. And in fact, experience shapes the brain and the neurons that fire together wire together so that child if that's done over and over and over that child's brain understands discipline fear anger reactivity and he goes into protection mode because that's what his brain is wired to do in a different sense if we're at church or target and my child is acting starting to act up the first thing i need to do is I need to access my upstairs brain. And to do that, I have to get calm, which is not easy to do in the middle of church or target when your kid is the loudest in the room. Oh, It's extremely hard to do. And most of us, because once we as parents know better, we do better, and all of this knowledge has come about only in only recent times, most of us open our mouths and our mothers or our fathers come out. <laughs> that's so true knock that off right now my irish catholic love my parents but god bless them they were really good at that and so it takes an unlearning for us as parents it takes actual work to get up into our upstairs brain and go okay why is my child acting this way what is the lesson or skill they are lacking how do i want to teach it i know my child's acting this way because in target there's a million toys and lots of stimulation I know we've been in church for a couple hours and they're a little child and developmentally, they can't sit still for this long. What is the skill or the lesson I want to teach them? One, they might need a boundary at Target because we don't get toys every time we go there. Or I might need to let them know this is the proper way that we act at church. But I'm going to take a developmental focus too and say, you know what? Is that too much to ask for my four-year-old child? How do I want to give them that lesson? The how is key. The how involves how do I look? Am I angry? Am I showing? Is my voice really scary or sharp? Is my expression really mean? Um, are my eyes really, am I standing my physical presence and my eyes really staring down at my kid? Am I really intense with my response? Am I, are my gestures kind of scary? All of that entrenches a kid down in the reactive brain and they're going to fight you or they're going to run away from you. If I can go ahead and really fight that and get really calm, my child will calm and he actually moves from his brain, from the midbrain up until the prefrontal cortex where he can think and he's receptive to what comes next. So it looks like this. I put my bat or my hand on the back of my little four-year-old because that releases oxytocin in her brain and it's the connection. It's my connection. They say, hey, I whisper with a really quiet voice. I get down on her level and I say, hey, church is getting long. You've been sitting still for a really long time, but it's hard. And that sentence right there, I tell every parent, keep in your back pocket. It's hard. That's connection. I am mm. connecting with you. I am under, I'm seeing you for developmentally where your brain is. And I'm saying it's hard. I might be saying it's hard when they're being illogical 
And I'm not giving them permission to be illogical. I'm just connecting. I'm de-escalating because then I'm opening their brain up to hear the lesson. This is not the way we act in church. Now I might as a parent then have some choice because now they're listening. I might say, we're going to go outside and take a break and get some water and then come back and try again. Or I might say, this is not how we act in church. Why don't I scoop you up and you snuggle up with me? You can put your head here. Or maybe I was really smart as a parent and I brought some activities for that child to redirect their attention to. That child would never have redirected to either snuggling up with me, diverting their attention or redirecting their attention to something to keep them um, occupied if I had come at them angry, if I had met their downstairs brain with my downstairs brain. And so there's other times. Let me, let me ask you a question real yeah. quick. So let me, let me state where I hear you coming from and then let me kind of flip to what I think uh, is the rebuttal that oh, yeah. some parents will, will say. Oh yeah. Um, I first of all hear you saying that our face programs a child's brain. Yes, sir. Our tone programs a child's brain in ways that will be lasting. Yes, it's called your social engagement system and they have one too. And because we're, we are animals, essentially we're social beings. It was from a protection standpoint that our brains developed the capacity to read another person's social engagement system and we're determining threat. So if we're not careful as parents, we can, at least in our child's brain, our child's brain can now categorize us as a threat. Not only that, they then kick into protection behavior. Ooh. Wow. So as a parent, so I just want to say this is this is it profoundly important for those of us who uh, a lot of this stuff is more caught than taught. Yes. So it's interesting as you're talking about it right now. Um, there's things that some of us as parents might be doing that are healthy and we don't even know why it's healthy. And then there's things that some of us are doing that we we don't think matter but are going to be something that your child has to heal from for the next 20 years. So this, this is, I think, very important. Here's the rebuttal. Yep. Let's and I brought this up. I brought this up in my interview with John Louie and he countered it well. Okay. Um, I think that uh, the old school generation, we'll just call it that. Um, it's like, hey, you're getting played by your kids. You need to win. It's, it's, a, it's almost like a power struggle. Yes. And you need to break your kids. It's kind of like when we, you know, put people in the military, you know, you get broken, so to speak, and then you do it my way and this and that. And I think this sort of battle, if you will, of the builder generation or the older generation, um, that's what they remember. Even when I was growing up, Jane, it's kind of interesting. Um, it was kind of that idea of don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. Or it's this idea of a parent who's stressed out all the time. And my mom was a single mom trying to raise two kids on her own. I mean, of course she was stressed. Um, but my social engagement system, oh my gosh, was deeply affected by that. And I love my mom and yes. and I love my, 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 but the point is, is that that type of environment did create certain um, reflexes in me. Not just and so, neural pathways in your brain. Go ahead. And, and what's unfortunate about that is that it, it's, it's like, unconscious almost like so it's not something i can like even as a therapist i'm just going to be really human here for a moment 
as a therapist, I can tell people certain things, but I'm an organism just like they are. And I have defaults because of what I, how I got damaged too. So it's interesting the way you say this, but the rebuttal is, yeah. oh, here we go again. We have another therapist telling me to coddle my kid. Oh, here we go again. And you can just hear, hear people's manager part comes out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> here we go again. Another parent who's being too soft. That's why we have the next generation. They're soft. They don't know what they want. We need to, mm -hmm. we need to toughen them up again. We need to, again, that, you know, you know that narrative, Jana. Oh, I know it so well. So how do you, how do you lovingly confront that perspective? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, it, I say, which part of the brain do you want to develop? Do you want a child who has impulse control? Do you want a child who makes good decisions? Do you want a child who knows where the darn boundaries are? You better believe that's part of our program. But the, and so let me talk a little bit about this. So there's two, two main roles we have as parents. Communicate love, set the dang boundary, okay? Mm. This approach does not eliminate set the dang boundary. It just shows you how to do it more effectively. Mm. Okay. So I often get that. Well, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Okay. Spoiling is a child who has no boundaries. And what mm. kind of rod are you using? Because the rebuttal to that is parents, you're going to reap what you sow. Now, if you want to break a child, if that's the old school terminology, you're going to get short-term compliance. You bet you are. And you're going to build this part of the brain who fights or flights you for the rest of your days. Mm. Also, remember that word template I used? Mm -hmm. How we speak, how we be with our children becomes their internal voice, becomes their internal working model of managing their emotions. So if I'm overly harsh, if I'm not communicating love and I'm overly setting a boundary over and over with meanness, because I would put mean and weak both as things we want to avoid in children. Okay. Mm. So if I'm overly mean and, and, and harsh to my child, that's how they're going to be to themselves. And is that what I want to be giving my children? No, it's also only working with the lower primitive part of the brain. And so that's where I would say, if you want to transmit something of value to your child, you can't threaten and force it into their brain. At some point, they have to struggle with it and own it and it becomes theirs. That's where values and faith is really something that we want to gently cultivate in our children versus threaten it into their being because they're going to fight that at some point. Now, inversely, we would say if we want to develop impulse control, develop a strong moral compass, have a child learn how to regulate their emotions, develop empathy, make thoughtful decisions, you're talking about this part of the brain. And we as parents, we have learned in parenting that we wanna build that. We actually have the ability to build neurofibers for our children through repeated experience, okay? so. If that's what we want to develop, thoughtfulness, abstract struggle with what is my faith and what are my values, you have to repeatedly unlock this part of the brain. This part of the brain shuts down when a child is threat, is experiencing threat and stuck in their emotional brain. 
That's why we say connection before correction. That's why we go to the tantrum and we template and teach a child. We're not scared of your emotions. We're here to confidently manage these emotions. We're gonna teach you how to manage these emotions. And once we can get you to calm this part of your brain, oh my gosh, neural fibers actually grow from your prefrontal cortex down into your midbrain. And you actually develop in your child quicker pathways where they can regulate quicker and go to logic and reason. And isn't that what I wanna be doing with my children's brain from the moment they're born all the way up through their lives? And with my children who are now nine, nine and four, is it still hard all the time? Yes. And am I committed all the time? So my mm. children here, my children here, because boundaries are safety. Boundaries, if right. communicated with safety, give a child the bumpers of what's expected behavior and they communicate safety. And I'll, I'll give an example, the most extreme example I have of why boundaries are so important and why it's a component. I had a kiddo, upper teens, and she was struggling with suicidal ideation. And after a lot of work with the family, she looked at her parents and she said, I just want you to ground me. That is not a typical expression of a, of a teenage girl, right? No way. But this was a kiddo who had been given no boundaries. She didn't know where the limit setting was and she was crying out for it. And, and that's actually something that our children cry out for, but we don't always notice it because they resist the boundaries. But me as a parent, I have confidence in setting my boundaries because I know that as much as my kids push against them, so long as I'm communicating them in an effective way without anger through my upstairs brain, I know it's what they need. And so when you say to me, spare the rod, spoil the child, I'll say, let's work on your rod. Ooh. Let, let's talk about that for a moment because I have had people tell me, and I don't agree, um, but I've had t people tell me, um, I've had, again, I, 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 I create an intersect for faith and psychology, right? Um, I find that people who are defensive when it comes to, you know, they have some sort of thing with psychology. I'm not saying all the pop psychology is healthy. There's some bad stuff out there, guys. I, you get that. What I want to say, though, for some of us is there's this very narrow interpretation of, for instance, the rod. Or even you take a scripture that we see in Proverbs, um, train a child in the way they will go. And when they were old, old they will not depart from it. Most people interpret that as a promise. Actually, what that is, is an admonition to parent well. It's kind of even a sarcastic scripture in a way of, well, if they turn out a certain way, <laughs> don't be surprised. And I think some people, um, when it comes to looking at the Bible, to, you know, spirituality to help them raise their kids, um, they can have a very rigid approach. And the rod can be through the lens of the most extreme form. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting as you, you say that um, in a lot of Christian circles, there's a ton of skepticism, but here's what's interesting and why I had Jaina on. Because me and Jaina and our entire practice, we have to deal with people who hold religious in a rigid way and the effect that has on kids, whether they are uh, bio kids or adoptive kids. There's a lot of situations that we have with adoptive kids who come into rig religious, uh, religiously rigid homes. 
And so I get for some of us, you, you're just, you're scared and, and, and you're, you're maybe even mistrustful of psychology or whatever. I'm telling you right now, there are many religious communities that are not, they are not uh, healing their children and they are not producing children that are emotionally intelligent and grounded. Um, they get self, uh, the optics look that they're self-governed, but to your point, Jana, it's it's very short term, especially when you see kids go, kids go to college. They don't do well. They make really bad decisions. So let's go there for a moment. Yeah, what has been your experience yep. with religiously rigid, not religiously uh, healthy, but religiously rigid homes? I think my, my initial where I meet them is your intention is good. Mm. Your intention is there let's make it more effective. And, and what, what so much of that is about is about not allowing a really crucial part of developing the brain, which is called the productive struggle. Hmm. Now the productive struggle is a balance and it's where we let our children experience life and struggle with hard things where we balance out enough of the struggle that they have to get through to learn a lesson where we don't fix it for them and we don't prevent the struggle from happening. Okay. So, and the other piece that happens is parents get scared of the struggle. They don't want mm. their kid to be too exposed to one thing. And that's fine as every family has to define that differently. But what I'll say is when you're scared, you hijack the lesson. Your reactivity to your child doing something that is developmentally typical, and it's scary when our kids hit those developmentally typical pieces, your reaction, your fear that you show through anger, through your social engagement system, through your words, through your threats, your fear is all the child focuses on and they stay entrenched in this part of the brain, you have hijacked the dang lesson. You have missed a beautiful opportunity for that child to struggle emotionally with a desire and then access the tempering impulse control that's up here. And in fact, it's sort of like, here's the child, here's the lesson, parents stood right in front of it. What we want to do is say, here's the child, here's the lesson, here's the parent being mm. the child. Now, that doesn't mean that I let my children go out at nine and get on TikTok or do something that's too big for them. That's when we set the healthy boundary with the calm social engagement system. And I'm going through that right now with some young kids that live in my house that I love dearly. <laughs> And so the answer is, the answer is, the answer to that kiddo is no. But we will come to a point in your life when you're ready for that. And the answer at that time will be yes, with lots of support and conditions from me. So I could say, hell no, you're too young. You're not getting that phone, that app. And then the kid's just mad at me because I've mm. shown them anger and automatically it's not a choice. Our central nervous system, especially the autonomic system, which regulates emotion is, is unconscious. It's not a choice. So my child is just looking at me and now she's real mad at me versus I'm a confident parent who's not ruffled. 
that you want to try this crazy thing that's too big for you. And I say, baby, no, we're not going to do that right now. And so she can't be mad at me. She can be a little mad at me. She will be a little bit mad at me. But I didn't hijack her central nervous system. So then it, after she processes through that anger, she can go up here. And because I do it repeatedly, she can say, well, mom knows something that I don't know yet. Okay, so that's with littles. With our big kids, it's sort of like it's scary for parents. It's really scary for parents to let them struggle, especially if we're talking about something like a value or faith, okay? And so in those moments, I again go to what we know about the brain. Concepts of faith, concepts of values, those are upper level brain activity. And so our role is to hold our child through the struggle. Now, sometimes this looks like a kid saying, I don't believe your faith. I don't want your faith or I don't share in your values. I don't want your values. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in that moment, um, I remind parents of a scripture and I use this with a family who's very faith-based, who really believed in that scripture from Proverbs and also that spare the rod, spoil the child. Be not quick in your spirit to become anger for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And that's going to be the approach you use. I know it's scary when your children challenge your value base. I know it's scary when your children challenge something really crucial to you and it's developmentally typical and it's probably on time. So why is my child acting this way? Developmentally, this is the rebellion that we know. What is the lesson? I want them to own their faith or this value at some point. How do I communicate it? How do I teach it? How do I discipline teach it? I want to do it in a way that isn't infused with anger because that actually entrenches them in the rebellion. And now I've set up this beautiful power struggle that we're going to spend years on. Let me let me just first of all affirm what you just said. It, literally, I, I do a ton of interviews. Like I do a ton. What you just said is one of the most profound um, soliloquies that I've had in an interview. I don't, it, it was profound. Hijacking the lesson. Spiritual formation is a big, a big part of his prefrontal cortex. Didn't even, I did not know that. <laughs> um, and what you're saying is profound, Jaina. And I just want to affirm that first and foremost. Um, the second thing that I'm, I'm really hearing in all of this is the fear. Um, I think that people get into faith for different things. Some people want certainty. Some people want fire insurance. R regardless, people follow God. They, they, they follow scriptures. Some, some people, whatever, they're, they're looking for something to help them. And a big part of why people do things, uh, you know, spiritually is to control fear. And so I just love how you just attuned yourself as a parent, me as a parent, and all the other parents watching, and people who are helping to parent, even if you're not a bio parent, with the fear and, and developmental typical uh, behaviors. Like, oh my gosh, this is developmentally typical. Interestingly enough, Matina and her research found, as it relates to helping children form, their brains are figuring out their faith, faith well into their 20s. So for a lot of people, they're thinking that my kid is going to figure out the most, a lot of their faith in their teens and become a Christian and get baptized and, and they're going to be in heaven with me. And, uh, amen. I think that's awesome. 
but they're really still figuring out their faith well into their 20s. And what Mateen and her research showed is that what, what, what kids really need are communities that do not give up on them. And what I'm hearing you say is, don't give up as a parent when it's hard. Don't walk away from the, ta the tantrum. Don't detach. Don't become despondent. Don't become resigned. <laughs> don't become overly discouraged. And so I just, I feel almost encouraged by what you're saying. I'm glad to hear that. And, it, and just as we know how our children's brains work, we know how our brains work. So when we're threatened and we're scared and we feel like failures as a parent, we're in the midbrain. Mm. And it's very mm. helpful. And the credit goes to Dan Siegel and all the people um, that that have taught us all these amazing trainings as therapists. I'm regurgitating their research. So let's give credit where credit's due. But all that research shows us, just like us, when we're scared, we're in our midbrain. In those moments, it's helpful to get it organized and to say, this is okay that my child questions this. This is developmentally what they're supposed to do. And I need to move to my upstairs brain and be the holding space for the productive struggle or the tantrum. I am the holding space. I'm not going to show you that I'm scared of your questioning of my values. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's the best thing I can do to plant the seed and keep watering my values for you is I can show you my values are unwavering. Mm -hmm. my, my brain is older than you. I have also, I was given by my Roman Catholic parents room to struggle leave my faith and come back but i did it on my own and they held that space for me and so it's it's sort of like if i show you that i'm confident in my values that means so much more than telling you and threatening you to believe what i believe in fact it gives you the room that god gives us to struggle and have free will exactly and it's so much more meaningful. And so when when somebody challenges in my house, my beliefs or my values, I say, yep, that's hard. You don't agree with me. And if it's a boundary, I set the boundary. But if it's a thought process that's developmentally typical, I give them room and space to struggle with that. And I am not unwavered or threatened in my values just because this brain that's still developing and is so much younger than me is struggling with it. In fact, I look at that and I go, look at those little neural connections that are building in that little brain right now. Mm. I'm not going to hijack the lesson. I'm going to model the lesson non-verbally, confidently, as a rock for them to return to. Can I, can I ask you, can you talk to my parents who feel like they have destroyed their kids? That, that they feel like they have permanently damaged their children. Um, I find that as parents, parents feel like failures constantly. And how do you strengthen or how do you encourage your parents who feel like they have just done all the, they've made all the wrong moves? Yeah. Well, I let them know that you still have biologically, chemically, the most powerful connection to that planet than any or that kiddo than any other person on the planet. And it's actually never too late. And repair mm. is a crucial skill that we give our children. 
and we teach our children when we've erred and we fail because it's good enough parenting, not perfect parenting, because life is good at, we all make mistakes throughout life, that you go to your child and you model and teach them repair. Now, I live in my midbrain as a parent more than I want to. Mm. I am Irish Catholic through and through. And I work so hard. It's constant struggle as a parent, but I mess up a lot. And my children experience something a little different from what I did is I go to them and I say to them, I messed up. Mm. I'm working on this. So I'm modeling for them. Failure is okay. We're not scared of it. Here's how you repair. Here's how you make it right. I'm also modeling for them my connection. I care about you. I'm not too scared or I am not too inept to come to you and show you my love when I make a mistake and honor your feelings. Mm. And I'm here to tell you, I don't care how old your kids are, if they're in their upper adulthood, repair still matters. They have thirsted for it because of that dang connection that they will always have to you. I work with kids who are separated from their biological parents, maybe for decades. There's a hunger there. There's a thirst there. That connection is still there. It's never too late. I, I heard a saying of a guy. So we had a couple come and do a marriage. A, par- a marriage workshop for us earlier this year. And he said something to me, I repeat over and over and over. Um, he said that, you know, he's finding out that his kids don't need him less as they get older. They need him more. I'm like, Oh, I'm getting like choked up, but, um, yeah. Ooh. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wonder for you, like, as you, as you think about your background, cause I think as a therapist, I can go into that room and I can put on my therapy hat and forget that I'm bringing a story into that room. Yeah. Um, what story, just briefly, are you? do you bring into your therapy? Because you, you're just like a contrast I'm seeing with you. Where you, you do amazing work with families, but they would have no idea that you came from a very different... Like sometimes people think as therapists that we just grew up in good families. Or we grew up in perfect homes or whatever. And... and, and and we got a head start or something. No, <laughs> that's part of what's getting worked up in me right now is I didn't have a head start. I'm a late bloomer. Um, so for you, um, without, I mean, you don't have to share too much, but like, what's the person, what's the backstory and how does that relate to this now where you are? Cause you're in a great place now. Well, I think I love the phrase I learned a long time ago. Most of us therapists came into this field naturally. <laughs> and I think it's a strength. Um, and, and I was conditioned or the universe had this beautiful plan for me to know trauma, to struggle with trauma, to dig a way out of trauma, to repair with the people I love who have been in my life, my whole life and to use it as a tool. So for me, my parents did this beautiful job of showing me that we love people through hard, judgmental times. Mm. 
you know, we wear our last name with no fear. And just because a person is, is in the worst of the throes of addiction, incarceration, um, domestic dispute, there's still value and a soul there. And you never turn your back on that. So some of that was wonderful. And it conditioned me to look at every parent I see, no matter what their circumstances are, and to and to find the intrinsic value of that soul and to cultivate and develop it and hold it. Um, really from the most non-judgmental stance you can have. I also grew up knowing what it was like to be extremely judged and the toxicity that that creates. And so that's where I will meet a parent at any stage of their parenthood and, and still know that they have value to give to that child. They mm. have value to give to themselves. Um, but I also think, you know, it was exposure to stuff that I learned is really toxic to little ones growing up and big ones going through life. And so it's kind of like that whole thing about I can love you and communicate love professionally and as a mom to my children, but I also have boundaries and I'll set those boundaries. And so it's helping parents navigate when they've tried everything and they've read, they've read every parent book out there and they watch every Instagram feed and it's hard to make sense of it. I help them find the boundaries of what you're doing is harming the development of your child's brain. What you're doing is getting in the way of exactly what you want to accomplish. And what you're doing is toxic to you. You don't feel good as a parent or as a child doing this behavior. Mm. Um, but I think it was a lack of the, sometimes a lack of what, what was acceptable behavior boundaries that as a person, I, I had to really learn and still struggle um, and had to really find a voice for. Um, when you grow up with some codependency, there's the boundaries are so iffy. Um, that's my story is just really defining boundaries and what's acceptable, what's not, and still maintaining love without turning bitter. And I, I'm fortunate I'm fortunate at my age to have both of my parents still alive and to be able to go to both of my parents and question and be angry or hurt about things. And to, and that's where I'm speaking from experience here, folks, and to have in my 40s, uh, the person, the two people I love the most, look at me and say, that was wrong. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And if I could go back and do that over, I would. And that heals so much. So for parents who really struggle with like coming to reflection and, and oh gosh, it must be too late. I'm speaking from my bones when I say it's never too late. Because, yes, our brains get fully formed by about 25 or 30, but we learn for the rest of our lives. Mm. And, you know, it's amazing to me. I do this thing where I calculate in my brain 
how old were my parents when my kids, when I was my kids' age? And I look and I go, they were babies. They were babies. I had children much later than my parents. And I look back and I thought, God, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. And they started with a lot of disadvantages. And so there's that. I hold that and I can still hold. I wish there were some things that were better. And because they have they have said that to me, I get to combine the two and I get to have so much grace with how I look at them. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate audience you allowing us to be people because one of the things I find as a therapist and also as someone who's more of a public figure and so forth that it, the more sort of out there you are, the less human you become. And I just, I, I think at some point we have to humanize. <laughs> like as we have these conversations, remember that we're human. Uh, <laughs> and I think some people, um, when it's, we're so broken and we're so damaged, we need someone else to be more healed or whole than we are. And as we, we need them to be that, they can't be human. And, and I think that's a double-edged sword because when people aren't able to be human, then they can, we can, you know, to some degree, you can never forgive them. Yeah. And I, I love what you just said, Jaina, which is you acknowledge the humanity of your parents. You know, it's, as I, as I'm, as I'm doing this right now, uh, there are those of you who feel like you failed your kids and it's amazing just seeing, you know, your testimony, Jaina, where it's like, Hey, later on parents can mature. I think my dad is the same way. It's just, they mature and they come back and they're like, Hey, guess what? And, and, and I don't think as parents, we understand how, uh, for some of our kids, they've been waiting their entire lives to hear that their entire lives. And so you might be thinking, oh, it's water under the bridge or whatever. So anyway, I just, I really appreciate that, Jaina, because we're human too. Yeah. And I think this kind of helps people, you know, in terms of like, you know, just conceptualizing it. Let me ask you, what are some next steps for yes. parents? I feel like parents, you know, there's this book, obviously, uh, you know, No Drama Discipline, Dan Siegel. Um, but let's talk about some other steps on top of that. Yeah. So... What I say to parents, and, and I do this a hundred times a day, it starts just within you, your central nervous system, your brain, and how you respond to your children. Attachment is a dance of a hundred million interactions we have with our kids. And so every interaction I have with my kids that you have with your kids, it's an opportunity to reshape that brain. I don't care how old the kids are. And so what you do is just starting with connection before correction, connection before redirection. And it's, it's connection with myself first. Am I regulated? Am I reacting? Is this the little younger, older hurt inside of me that's coming out of my mouth that I'm spilling onto my child? Am I scared of my child's behavior? Am I feeling like it, it reflects on me as a failure as a parent. Can I, can I be big enough to name that, tame it, tell myself I've got this, and just initially validate whatever my kid's going through. Connect with that child, because I know it's going to save me a whole bunch of time. Can I de-escalate my kid through connection, and then can I lay down that boundary in a really healthy and effective way? And when my kid throws the tantrum in response to that boundary, 
can I then proceed with confidence as a parent knowing that's the child's brain learning? Mm. Can I look at tantrums? Can that be my two things for parents? Start working on connection before correction. Don't be scared of that dang tantrum or that back talk or that meltdown or that sass from that teenager. Can I look at every one of those interactions as a brain building opportunity? Can I know that it's never too late to work on brain building? I didn't learn some of this until my twins were older. So my younger kiddo has a lot more brain building time with mom and dad. But can I look at every single meltdown, scary tantrum as an opportunity for me as a parent to build actual brain architecture, neural connections in my kid's brain. That's what happens. Can I respond in a way where I ask those questions? Why is my kid acting this way? What is the lesson? What is the skill they are lacking? How do I want to give it to them? How do I do it where I don't hijack their central nervous system, meet them with my downstairs brain, and now two downstairs brains are just battling it out? Those are the next steps. You know, I gave you some resources. I have, I, I, with my families, I give a million examples and scripts that we can use. I, a Dan Siegel does that in his book. You can buy the book and read it and have all these new skills and scripts to use with your kids. You know, um, I think it's really important for parents. There's a whole redirect is a way of discipline. So every letter there, Dan Siegel talks about, here's how discipline is effective. You know, reduce the words you're using. This part of the brain can't hear it. Embrace, right. embrace emotions. All feelings are okay. All behaviors are not. But all feelings should be okay. We want our children to learn how to manage all those feelings, right? So there's some really helpful really applicable tools you'll take from any of Dan Siegel's books. He also on his website has courses for parents. Oof. You know, all this stuff, it's it's neuroscience that he has boiled down and said, here, go use this in your house. There's a million therapists like me, Kyle. There's a million of us trained. If you're a kiddo and you are really struggling, go find a good therapist. Ask them if they know about co-regulation. Ask them if they understand attachment. Um, if you don't need professional therapy, start with some of these great books that are researched, neuroscience boiled down. Here's how to do it in your house. Here's how to optimize the development of your child's brain. Well, I will make sure that I put all of that in the description. Jaina has been so gracious to put together a list and I will just insert that right down into the YouTube or podcast, depending on what you're listening to. And I will make sure that all of that's in there. And, uh, Jaina... I really, really, really thank you. We got to go to a meeting now. We do. <laughs> but um, we need to get to our meeting. But anyway, um, Jaina, thank you. I, I want to tell you what I tell all my people. And you've watched so many times. And finally, I'm telling you <laughs> that we are with you. And God is for you. I know that. I know that. Thank you for letting me be part of such an important community, Kyle. I love what you've created. Well, it's an honor to have you here. And I'm so grateful to have you right across the hall so we can debrief anytime and talk or whatever. I'm so, so grateful and honored. Yep. Um, uh, if you have listened all the way through, thank you so much for paying all the way, uh, attention all the way through. Watch time helps with 
you know, uh, as a YouTuber, watch time really helps. We'll just put it that way. So thank you if you've watched all the way through. Some of you guys watch over and over and over. This will probably be one of those episodes that you, you'll want to replay more than once. I'll see you next time.